Apache Airflow was first released in 2015, introducing the first popular open-source solution to data pipeline orchestration. And during that time, Airflow has been widely adopted for dependency-based data workflows. A developer might orchestrate a pipeline with hundreds of tasks, with dependencies between jobs in Spark, Hadoop, and Snowflake. Since Airflow's creation, it has powered the data infrastructure at companies like Airbnb, Netflix, and Lyft. And it's also been the center of Astronomer, a startup that helps enterprises build infrastructure around Airflow. Airflow is used to construct DAGs. DAGs are directed acyclic graphs for managing data workflows. Maxime Buchemin is the creator of Airflow, and Vikram Koka and Ash Berlin-Taylor work at Astronomer. They all join the show to talk about the state of Airflow, the purpose of the project, its use cases, and the open source ecosystem. If you want to reach 30,000 unique engineers every day, consider sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Whether you are hiring engineers or selling a product to engineers, Software Engineering Daily is a great place to reach talented engineers, and you can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, if you're curious about sponsoring the podcast, or forward it to your marketing team. We're also looking for writers and a videographer. If you're interested in working with us, you can also send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be on the show again. Yes. So we're talking about Airflow today, and I'd like to start by just giving a little bit of background on Airflow, and then we'll get caught up to the present and speculate on the future a bit. Max, you started Airflow back in 2015. What was Airflow originally used for? So, so the origin story is is a little bit long. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go quickly through it. But originally, so I joined Airbnb with the idea of coming and building this thing and and open open sourcing it. And I was coming from Facebook at the time, where um, internally at Facebook they, they they're building all sorts of internal tools, and they had multiple schedulers and. There was clearly one that was uh, ahead of the pack, and you know, out of all this experimentation on schedulers, this tool internally called DataSwarm, which is not open source and not viable to the public, uh, was coming out as something that everyone wanted to use, was really popular. So I took some of the ideas from from DataSwarm and some of the ideas from uh, you know ten years at that time of you know ETL and kind of pre-data engineering, data engineering. So like data warehouse, like years and years of doing data warehouse architecture and ETL. And I decided to, to go ahead and build this thing. So I think like within uh, within a few months, we're up and running with like an early, a very early version of Airflow. And it was all about, uh, the, the first version was mostly about scheduling uh, data processing jobs in places like Hive, Spark, Bash script, Python scripts. So really like taking all of these little workloads and tasks and orchestrating them in in DAGs and directed acyclic graphs. So that was like the the very kind of first first kind of set of use cases for Airflow. So we had like different DAGs for different, I call it data marts or different subject area in the data warehouse. And then that grew very quickly to support all sorts of other things. So Airflow turned out is a really good distributed kind of cron scheduler or batch scheduler. So internally at Airbnb, it grew to 
um, ser service all sorts of other use cases. So things like big data frameworks, you know, database scrapes and export, A-B testing, doing all sorts of like data centric or data dashboard centric kind of prep and munging. And then all sorts of teams that needed to schedule back batch job kind of hopped on the bandwagon. Teams like, you know, doing pricing, fraud detection, data infra maintenance, anomaly detection, metrics repository, feature repositories. I grew kind of over many years to support all sorts of data-centric use cases. And it's obviously been successful. It's had lots and lots of use cases since being open-sourced at lots of other companies. And to talk through a bit the usage, Airflow centered around DAGs. Could you give an example of a typical DAG or directed acyclic graph that might represent a data pipeline? Right. So, so I think like, you know, if you think of something like a batch scheduler, like cron, if you think the most basic of all, if you think of like, what is a, what is like a typical cron job, there's no real good answer for it because, you know, you can really use cron to schedule just about anything. And it's kind of the case with Airflow, but I think like Airflow caters to data engineers so much because just the sheer amount of tasks that they need to kind of juggle with and the number of plates that they need to spin and keep spinning. So a very typical place to start is what I would call kind of the DBT use cases of like orchestrating a lot of, of like SQL queries, right? But like quickly beyond that, you want to schedule, you know, a handful of Spark jobs or, you know, scraping some SaaS services or getting data from other sources. So I think a typical DAG might be kind of a subject area of your data warehouse. So at Airbnb, it could be customer experience data, for instance, and we'd create a DAG that would get data from all sorts of SaaS services that we'd use there, like Zendesk, Genesis, like call center data, uh, ticketing information, in-app kind of information, and gather all this data and bring it to a central kind of data mart. That's a typical use case. Another one, you know, at Airbnb uh, that we worked on early on was called Core Data, and that was essentially creating a lot of uh, of, of like a, a certain number of fact tables and dimension tables for all of the core data at Airbnb, like bookings and users and things and things like that. Has the usage of Airflow gone beyond the scope of what? it was originally intended for? Definitely. So <laughs> I think I think so much so, but like, I think originally, you know, you kind of scratch your own itch and then people define what actually the thing can do, right? So I think it's been definitely pushed in all sorts of direction. Some of it we, we kind of embraced and not only like allowed, but also embraced. I think in some cases we had to build an immune system to, to make sure that Airflow could support some of these uh, really intense use cases too. So take me forward to today. So if we talk about today, I, you know, I just tweeted this question. You thought it was a, a reasonable place to start. This question of the fact that Airflow is really popular, it's used by a ton of people, but there are some competitors to it today. There's some new entrants why is there some competition? Why are there alternatives to Airflow today? Let, let me try to take a stab at this one, and I'm curious to hear the others too. But um, 
I, th- I think part of the success of Airflow is because the, the contract that it provides it, or the contract that it offers is really simple, right? So it's like express your tasks using our operators and define your DAGs and we're going to go and run these tasks. And uh, there's, there's a bit of a separation of concern here where Airflow doesn't know too much about what your actual data flow are doing, right? It's like you, you, the contract is largely based around tasks. And that's a fine abstraction and something that people uh, can comprehend and, and live and work with very well. Um, I think a lot of people are looking at Airflow or something like Airflow and think there's so much more it could do potentially. It could know so much more about the metadata in your system. It could know more about the nature of the jobs that are taking place in the system. And I think like the beauty of Airflow is like a lot of people are building on top of it, kind of second layer things and frameworks that do some of these things. Right, uh, kind of on that base contract, they build upon that base contract to, to kind of jam in their own business logic or their own frameworks on top. I think people people that are looking at this space think that there's an opportunity to maybe provide more guarantees and you know offer in in a way that you'd probably need to have more constraints kind of upfront, but provide more guarantees and maybe be more opinionated on things like how should we do. Uh, data quality management and data quality assertions. How should we do certain things like type uh, enforcement or inference? So, and Airflow is a little bit agnostic to a lot of these things. So, well, if I could just chime into that because this is such an interesting topic of discussion. One of the things I loved about Airflow as I was initially exposed to it was it was an expression of uh, data pipelines as code. And uh, that was one of the first times I'd spoken with Max about it as well. And I think it's like the evolution of anything as code in any particular programming domain or any particular domain uh, domain overall is that there's a nature once there's a successful element of like at the base level of code, which is starting to be defined and then is successful, there's a natural level of like, you know, building abstractions on top as well as filling in the other elements of the software lifecycle. And I think that's completely natural as the evolution of what we're seeing with Airflow is for certain abstractions on top, things like, you know, SQL or other things or certain elements in the lifecycle when people want to be able to add into it. And I think that's a really good thing because that also reflects a maturation of data engineering as a practice and about, you know, different patterns within data engineering and then particular elements of tools or life cycles or flows, which make those particular patterns easier across the broad data engineering spectrum as a whole. And so I think that's just, we have seen this consistently across the board in different software engineering domains. And I think that's really what we're seeing with data engineering as a domain, using code as the base level infrastructure for solving problems in this particular domain. Right, so the the infrastructure as code uh, idea applied to data pipelines might be one way to to think about it. I'm still wondering. So, like the the newer data pipeline management things, like Dagster. Uh, Nick has been on the show to talk about Dagster, and uh, Prefect is another one of these data workflow schedulers. How do these alternatives to Airflow compare? Well, I, I think one clear uh, line that they, they cross that we don't cr- cross as directly is getting into the data flow 
space. So you can kind of think of a workflow scheduler or an ETL tool as having the workflow editor, which is kind of the place that where you define what are the tasks that are going to run and what are the dependencies across these tasks. And then there's the data flow editor, which is kind of getting inside a task and defining what is this task going to do. I think for Airflow, originally we were really interested in solving the workflow part of the problem and letting other system, orchestrating other systems that are really good at doing distributed data processing. Systems like you know, originally MapReduce and Hive, but uh, you know, Spark and PySpark and all of these other systems that are built that are super solid, distributed, fault tolerant, you know, and we decided quite consciously to not get in that space for the reason that it's a very complex area and these systems are really specialized. And it's kind of a slippery slope too. If you try to redesign Spark or something like Spark, there's so many, uh, so many things that you need to think about that we decided were mostly out of context uh, for Airflow originally. And I think some, some of these challenges are things around you know, budgeting and, and fault tolerance. So if you do go and allow data scientists to spin off infinite number of tasks instantly, it's, it's kind of great for them and they're gonna be happy and that's probably what they're gonna demand, but they can do a lot of, of damage you know, just in terms of budget or just in terms of like creating a lot of contention too. So, so I think we decided to call out to the systems that do these things well and orchestrate them as opposed to making it super easy as opposed to start building a competitor to these systems also. So if we talk a little bit more about modern DAGs, let's talk about an Airflow DAG. So if I'm executing an Airflow DAG, it's got a Hadoop job, a Spark job, Snowflake, you've got all these different systems that it's integrating with. How is Airflow communicating with these other data systems that make up a workflow? So the primary thing that Airflow uses to speak to other services, you know, your Hadoops, your Sparks, your interface as a DAG author is operators. So kind of operators are they're the tasks in your DAG, they're the nodes, nodes in your DAG. DAG being, you know, directed acyclic graphs, so you can branch and stuff like that. So each node in that graph is a DAG, is an operator. An operator, when it comes down to it, is a Python class with an execute function. It's slightly more complex than that, but but it's that's basically it. it it's a function. It's, it's a class with a, a function that Airflow knows knows to call. That then uses Python libraries to um, to speak to Hive, Hadoop, Spark. Whether that is the built-in libraries to go make a network request, or kind of built-in you know published client libraries. So PyHive for doing some Hadoop stuff like things like that. So it's just kind of we try to build on existing libraries where we can. Um, that's kind of one of the the strengths of Airflow is we've got all these hundreds of operators for all kind of like common data processing and data manipulation tasks from simple things to you know SQL queries, run this thing, do it, do a transform, take this file from S3. The list goes on and on to. EMR data proc jobs and data bricks and kind of yeah, listed longer than I can ever remember. If if I can chime into like so, an operator is a little bit like a task factory. So it's a more or less uh, you know a, a a class that you instantiate to get a task object. 
And part of the, the value proposition with Airflow is that it already knows, it has already all these abstraction to talk to the, all these external systems. And it makes it really easy for someone to say, to orchestrate these things and say, I'm gonna instantiate a, a Hive operator and just pass it the SQL. I'm gonna instantiate a, a Spark operator and just pass it a reference to my, to, to my entry point, to my Spark cluster. And then you, you simply have to, to say like, what are your tasks? And what are the dependencies between them? And uh, essentially, that, that that provides you with a DAG object. Uh, the other value proposition, too, for people who are less familiar with Airflow, is the web server that uh, makes it really easy for you to like to uh, to see what's going on, to see the status of your job, and see the status of your DAG. So, so you'll see very clearly which job ran when, whether it succeeded or failed, whether it retried. And you'll see uh, kind of your your graph representation of your DAG visually. In, in different views to really understand like what's happening with the execution of, of my task and my DAG. And so the the DAG is calling out to scripts and calling out to APIs? It's it's mostly like a an, it's an API, so it's it's not necessarily a script. So when you define a DAG, you're in a Python module where you instantiate an Airflow DAG object and a certain number of operators to create tasks. So you'll create, so a typical, you know, uh, Airflow DAG definition module will look like, a, you'll specify a DAG object, specify a certain number of tasks where you'll pass in your relevant parameters. So something like, hey, I want to instantiate a, it, it could be a snowflake job and I'm gonna pass it a connection ID to what is, you know, a reference to what is uh, the way that you connect to to your Snowflake instance with some SQL to run. And then you could, you could create as many as these tasks as you want and define in which order to run those. Uh, so which ones are, are kind of parent or dep dependence and dependencies or upstream and downstream tasks. And as you do that, you know, when, when I was saying earlier that Airflow does not necessarily too much about your data, it knows about your tasks. So it really, it is the king of understanding, you know, what your tasks are and in what order to run them. But the, as a data engineer, you know very clearly this task A is probably loading some data in a table, and then this task B is following up um, on task A and knows where the data should be because it's deterministic. So yeah, so the, the, the DAG code is really instantiating these operator objects. You can define your own pretty easily. And you know there can be you know, Python operators, Hive operators, Snowflake operators, so you can orchestrate your whole your whole workflow. And once you commit that, you know, the, the Airflow scheduler and the Airflow cluster will start playing the symphony, <laughs> basically, of orchestrating all your tasks and making sure that everything runs in place. And as an operator, you can easily see in the web server, where are you at, what's succeeding, what's moving forward, how long it took, all the information that you need as a data engineer to monitor your workflows. And I think one if I could uh, chime in, I think one Please. additional element which Airflow does really well is this notion of separation of concerns. And I think the DAG itself fundamentally has the effectively the application logic of what needs to get done and you know what sequence and what dependencies. And then there is the importing or referencing of the connection information 
about you know how to connect to this particular source or how to connect to a particular database or how to connect to something like Salesforce. And that is completely separate so that that can be pulled in at runtime, that can be potentially changed by a different person who manages credentials or different element in the organization. And then finally, resources are again, can be managed completely separately. I think one of the things which Airflow does really well is that separation of concerns from purely the space of the application developer or the DAG developer versus you know, the infrastructure concerns of you know, how do I connect to this particular system? How are these credentials stored and managed potentially centrally or for um, like, you know, security concerns? And then finally, you know, how are these resourced and managed from a resourcing standpoint and keeping that independent of the application logic? And uh, when... We're talking about an Airflow DAG. We're obviously talking about a distributed system that's plugging into a lot of other systems. I can imagine this being somewhat difficult to set up and configure. Is there anything that's particularly hard about setting up an Airflow cluster on cloud resources? Yeah, I can take this one. As I've been an operator of uh, the Airflow cluster early on at Airbnb, and I quickly kind of needed some some help to operate the, the cluster and all the connection. So when, when you're at that federation level or this uh, orchestration level, you'll typically see to all the problems that exist in the whole like data platform, data infrastructure too. So it can be fairly challenging to manage such a system. You, you also have all sorts of use cases and people using uh, the system in all sorts of different ways too. I think back in the days we didn't have Kubernetes we didn't have like Helm and we did, so I think it was harder where you'd have to start from probably like the EC2 plane if you are on AWS at the time. And there's a certain number of components that you need if you want to run Airflow in a distributed kind of way where you have multiple workers um, and, and you have a scheduler, you have a web server, you have a metadata database, you have a communication layer typically using Redis so that the scheduler can talk to the workers. So. It's, it's a fairly involved thing to manage a distributed system. Nowadays, we've seen the rise of uh, different ways to run Airflow within Kubernetes, for instance, that, that makes things a lot easy, uh, somewhat easier. Got it. So if I set up my Airflow cluster, what are some of the ongoing support issues that I'm going to encounter? What are the kinds of failure cases and difficult management issues that might come up? So what, one thing that's very clear is uh, that whenever any system on your data platform is going to fail, whether it's Spark, Hive, MapReduce, the name node, you're going to know very quickly as people will just come to the Airflow channel on your Slack or whatever communication mechanism you use in your organization and say like, Airflow is not working. And in a lot of cases, it's some other system that is having some sort of issue. So I think, I think like it's typical to see a lot of the issues kind of bubble that way. I think like a classic thing would be uh, running out of, of uh, worker slots, right? Where may, maybe you have a certain number of workers and you're able to schedule, I don't know, it could be like a thousand jobs in parallel. And at some point, maybe there's abuse, maybe there's like just a, a, a lot going on in the cluster. And, and sometimes it could be like Hive is overwhelmed or Spark is overwhelmed. So jobs are starting to queue up and people might reach out to say like, why is my job not running? And uh, the, the answer is often out of the control of Airflow itself. 
but sometimes the solution is to change your infrastructure to be a little bit more elastic or to put a kind of check mechanism in place. So Airflow's got different mechanisms to limit parallelism, which is part of that immune system that we've built over time that, that we should talk a little bit more about. But, but sometimes the solution is to parameterize your, your immune system and limit the parallelization that any specific DAG or pool of resources is able to, uh, to use. Plus nine times out of 10, it's DNS because it's always a DNS problem. And what are some other aspects of tuning I might need to do for my Airflow cluster? Like, would I need to, the situations where I'm going to need to manipulate the CPU or the memory that's allocated to the different uh, areas of the DAG execution? Yeah, so it, it kind of, it very much depends on what your tasks are doing. If you are calling out to third-party services, you know, your, your Hadoops, your Sparks, kind of network requests, then that level of tuning isn't really probably going to be an issue. People can and do process data inside Airflow, um, but it's still not the most common way it's used. So the most common things that you're going to run into will be kind of the, yeah, the kind of concurrency limits. Airflow has a number of different concurrency settings. You can have an overall number of like maximum number of tasks that you want your cluster to run. It's got a concept called pools where you can limit the amount of tasks using a third-party resource, you know, kind of a Hadoop pool. So you can say, I only want at most 10 jobs running in Hadoop at once. Or you could, you know, use that for a third-party API, which like, don't overload it, make sure only one, one job. So you create a pool of one. You can ensure that each DAG doesn't run too many tasks at once. So I think the default is something like 16 or maybe 32. So each DAG will only run 16 tasks at once. So if you have a lot of a big DAG, it won't over overwhelm all the other ones. So they're kind of like the defaults out of the box, try to get a sensible behavior for common use cases. But as you start to push it either vertically or horizontally, you know, lots of DAGs or one very big DAG, you're gonna to need to look at those limits and look at those concurrency settings and kind of work out what makes sense for your workflow. There are so many uh, configuration points with Airflow, which is can be a challenge for an Airflow administrator or someone setting up a cluster. Like the defaults are sensible, but, but over time, I think we grew to have a lot of these uh, configuration parameters that can be tweaked by the administrator and making sense of everything that's in your Airflow.cfg file and, and kind of finding the right value for your organization at any point in time can be can be challenging. I think in the context of uh, running on something like Kubernetes, too, it, it kind of changes the game around resource containment uh, or task containment. So it's this idea that any given task should be limited in how much resource it is given, right? For the health of the system, you need to make sure that a data scientist cannot go and create some sort of like our job that will you know allocate as many CPUs as there are on the box, so we, we, which we've seen before, right? You'll see a R operate in some mode that will look like, hey, how many CPUs are on this box? All right, I'm going to do like CPU number minus one and just you know <laughs> paralyze my stuff. Uh, so we've seen that early on at Airbnb, and we're like, like who the heck is doing this? and uh, introduced C groups like really early on, that's probably 2015, I think, when we introduced some sort of support uh, for C groups, which are, you know, a, a feature of the Linux kernel that allows you to define like, you know, the, the, the CPU and memory resources that are allocated to any given 
process in a system. So we did that, but I think like since we've been working on Kubernetes, we get all the nice properties that come out of uh, Kubernetes too. So you can define clearly like what is the the the, the image that we want to use and what kind of resource you want to allocate to any given tasks, and that made it so much easier to to operate Airflow. So you don't have to go on the lower level configuration to do that. There's other challenges that we've seen around things like impersonation, right? You might want to impersonate a certain user in different contexts. So that's something that some some tricks that Airflow has learned to to play kind of over over the years. Cool. So Ash and Vic, you, Vikram, you guys work at Astronomer, and this is a company that built is built around Airflow, and you're working with people who have enterprise use cases for Airflow. What are the common enterprise use cases that you've seen, and how do they compare to the kind of startup origin stories, the, the uh, Airbnbs and Netflix kind of use cases that Airflow was originally used for? So I'd say that one of the things we've seen is people really wanting to expand the use of Airflow because uh, typically it starts with a data engineer having downloaded Airflow, uh, using it for their data pipelines and then expanding it to a team and then saying, hey, there's uh, another team pretty much very similar to how uh, Max said it evolved at Airbnb, wanting to use it for maybe for ETL, maybe for ML pipelines and uh, more and more teams starting to adopt it. One of the things we've actually discovered during this particular process is that different teams, to some cases, have different needs. And uh, we wanted to make the experience for them, not only from a development standpoint, which I think Airflow does really well, but also from the deployment and the observability and the resource management standpoint, which are some of the key enterprise needs in uh, being able to deploy Airflow at scale. And so by scale, meaning that their number of deployments could be starting at around 20 deployments in some cases, going up to 100 deployments or, or more within that enterprise for different teams. So the ML team might actually have a particular deployment, which is maybe based on Scikit, and they have an image of Airflow based on that. They are running a lot of ML jobs, which have got a certain set of resource constraints and resource needs. They've got a different team might be based on ETL jobs, and they've got a very predictable uh, workflow it's every hour or daily jobs as well and some combination of a of a recurring element which does does not uh, or cannot be impacted by the experimentation workflows which are also run in airflow but be good to be able to segregate and manage them independently so some of the key things which we see is and i'm sure ash is going to chime in as well is around reliability is around observability ease of deployment and really that separation of concerns, which uh, brought up earlier about the needs of a large number of data scientists and data engineers just needing to deploy, to actually author and then deploy their particular data pipelines, but then be able to manage them at scale without them trampling over each other because of different teams' needs at different times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and kind of like use cases, it's, it's as varied as there are data, as many data scientists in the world. There's the traditional kind of batch jobs, absolutely. There's there's the more machine learning things. There's people running A, B, well, or split testing of machine learning models. Some delivery companies I know are trying to, they are 
their, their, their training and running their machine learning models to give you an estimate of when your, your food delivery is going to arrive because um, they can kind of, you know, it's very predictable based on load. So they've got, you know, machine learning models with it, which they're running through Airflow that based on the, based on the volume and stuff, that it's kind of, they re- pre-compute this every five minutes at peak and kind of farm it out and make it available so that, you know, when you, when you place an order through the app, it tells you your food's going to arrive X and, you know, they're running that through Airflow and they kind of got fitness scores coming out and then promoting the models and they're, all, they're doing that all through Airflow. So yeah, it kind of, it, it's anything you want with data, which is not a very good answer, but it's kind of, if you're doing something with data and you want to do it repeatedly and in a controllable and observable fashion, that's what people are doing on Airflow. And with Astronomer, the company they're building around Airflow, how does the deployment experience compare to if I was just to self-deploy on AWS, if I was just to configure everything myself, what's the difference? Sure. So you run AWS yourself, Airflow on AWS yourself, you need to ensure that you get all your DAGs and all your Python dependencies um, in sync on all the nodes in approximately the same time. There's a little bit of leeway there, but um, every node in an Airflow cluster, um, which you know, it could be as small as a single node, or it could be as large as 50 nodes per cluster. I mean, there's no theoretical limit, but that's the biggest I've heard of recently. Every node needs the same DAG files and anything executing those DAGs needs the Python dependencies installed. So Airflow as an open source project doesn't say how you should do that. So it's up to you to build your own deployment mechanism to get those DAGs available. That's one of the core things we've done at Astronomer is we said, this is how we think you should deploy. We think you should bake your DAGs and your dependencies into a Docker image and push that out. Um, we built a whole set of tooling. So deploying to your Airflow deployment on, a, on an Astronomer cluster is as simple as a Docker push. And then we handle everything else behind the scenes, making sure it all rolls up, rolls, rolls out, gets to up, you know, upgrades all the nodes, make sure they're all running the same version, and then um, you know, reports metrics about that. Okay, so we're talking talk about the modern Airflow ecosystem. The use cases have proliferated, and I imagine there must be some, I guess, growing pains that happen as the project has gotten mature. What are the maybe weak spots or um, areas of improvement or technical debt that have emerged over time across the Airflow project? Yeah, so I kind of like, generally one of the hardest parts of running an open source project is saying no to things. You know, one of the advantages of an open source project is you get thousands of contributors just sending you a pull request going, hey, it would be great if, if it did this. And sometimes the answer has to be, no, that's not Airflow's job. Um, that's kind of, kind of a, a general comment. Some of the technical debt left in Airflow, probably the big one would be availability of the scheduler. Right now, the scheduler is a single point. You should not run more than one currently. With Kubernetes, you, you know that basically equates to 
a deployment with max one, so that if it dies, Kubernetes will restart it. Your tasks aren't run in your scheduler, so the impact of your scheduler being unavailable for a node restart or a pod restart is tasks don't get scheduled for a minute or two, but that's not great. So that's kind of one of the big things, biggest bits of technical debt in Airflow, which was it hasn't impacted its availability to do its job, but it would be nice to fix it. And that's one of the big things we're working on kind of the next month we've already started at Astronomer. The Airflow team is working on making the scheduler highly available so that you can run more than one uh, scheduler. Yeah, I, I can speak about the tech depth too, because I think like sometimes uh, in the way that software evolves, and you know, I started a project too and took some shortcuts early on. And part of the beauty of the, the open source community too is to get things right over time. So when you have a massively successful open source project that's used at hundreds, if not thousands of places, and run under like a good governance model like the, the Apache Software Foundation, it enables all sorts of people to jump in and contribute and fix the things that needs to be addressed, improved, patched, you know. So, so th there's so much that comes out of, uh, out of, out of the distributed governance model from security patches, keeping things, you know, optimized and running well, uh, things like making the scheduler a distributed part of the system too that is uh, you know that that you can run in parallel so that's coming through now i think originally the rest api was not super well defined too uh, when i started the project and that's getting super well addressed by the community with people that are you know honestly like more rigorous and better than me at these things and and really making it right and i think it's what's interesting too is the idea too of like thinking about like what makes an open source project successful and sometimes part of it is like having a strong architecture you can build upon but sometimes it's doing the right thing at the right time too and the way that software evolves to it enables people to to go and uh, and and rearchitecture the bits and pieces that need to be rearchitectured the the one other thing I'd like to actually add to this is uh, something we, you brought up earlier, Jeff, which is about configuration of CPU and memory. And one of the things which I think is a big focus right now is just auto-scaling. Uh, really want people not to think about it and say, you know, here's some broad constraints because, you know, for like, you know, machine learning team, this might be the broad constraints uh, for an ETL team who's running production jobs or for experimentation uh, for an AB testing team, the, these are the constraints. But within that, just let things auto scale without needing any configuration up front and let the system automatically scale within those constraints so that people don't have to think about it. Again, that's part of the separation of concerns, which is that for a DAG de developer, or like whether it's a data scientist or a data engineer or any other particular role within a company, that they should be able to just focus on what they're actually trying to accomplish without necessarily worrying about the infrastructure concerns and how they would actually be deployed as long as they're within reason. So the auto scaling and not having to worry about constraints within a reasonable element is one key element we're working on. The second key thing which goes with auto scaling is again, those guardrails, which is when are you actually getting to a breakpoint before it actually breaks. And uh, coming in from like a little bit of an IoT background, that's kind of the holy grail, right? You wanna actually be able to do preventative maintenance and be able to address issues before it actually breaks. And so that's where the observability and being able to predict and say, you know, here's where the guardrails are, and this is what needs to be tweaked or changed 
is kind of a key element as part of making this continues to grow and adoption within a much larger set of uh, engineers within enterprises and around the world. Yeah, about this topic, I think it comes uh, it comes down to like, do you want to be on call for that system or not? Or do you want to rely on the expert that are specialized in operating the system and tuning it, configuring it, keeping it secure, providing SLAs on it so you can just rely on the professionals to do it as opposed to to struggling and figuring out like, you know, when you're going to upgrade the system or patch it. Um, so that part of operating distributed systems at scale in enterprises, it's very easy to underestimate how much work that takes. And it's nice when you can find a service that's reliable and people can, you can trust to do that better than, than yourself. You know. uh, how is the fault tolerance model for airflow today? Has it been improved or are there any issues that can, any failure scenarios that can cause, uh, you know, problematic situations like, you know, data quality issues or some kind of problem like that? So, so part of the foundation for that is that uh, we ask people to build idempotent tasks, right? So if, if in your airflow DAG, you have a task that will fix itself if you rerun it, then that makes it much more easier to, to operate. And I think it's, a, it's pretty much a standard in data processing in general that your task should be idempotent. So that means if uh, a, a task fails halfway through for whatever reason, or right before the end or right at the beginning, the Airflow scheduler knows it has not succeeded and can reschedule it. So at that point, uh, you know, another worker, maybe that worker died, maybe uh, you know, a grenade exploded in a AWS data center, and uh, there was some casualties and the servers are not there anymore. Um, you know, if, if you have an Airflow worker up and the scheduler is up, the task will rerun and reprocess itself within uh, the, what you define in terms of like retry policies, right? So in Airflow, you can define how many, ta how many times a task should be retry, how long you should wait between those retries, whether it's like a linear amount of time or you know, giving it a little bit more time as there's there's more failure, kind of exponential backup type of, type of scenario. And as long as you have a worker up and a scheduler up and you're, the, the core component of your cluster, things will work. Of course, if you don't have your metadata database or your, your Redis kind of message queue up, uh, things will come to a halt, right? So we need the, uh, you know, we need for all the vital organs to be up and functioning. And I think like typically the things that we rely on that have that are kind of single point of failure, like an RDS database or just like a metadata database, uh, it's pretty common for systems like Airflow to rely on such a system. And then these systems have, you know, failover mechanism or, you know, they have their own ways to provide guarantees about being up. Max, are there any mistakes you made, original sins in Airflow's architecture that pervade to this day? Well, I, th I think so. But I think like, as I was saying before, is like these shortcuts, maybe you can call them mistakes. Uh, but I think I, I've taken some shortcuts early on. Like one thing was like, say for the CLI to not talk to a REST API and just talk directly to the database, for instance. So that's like a design flaw is that, and I knew when I wrote that CLI that I should be writing, you know, REST API first and and then have the CLI talk to the REST API uh, to the REST API instead of directly to the database. But like, all these things are getting addressed today and that enabled us to build a relevant project 
earlier, you know, that delivered more value and grew a community. And these things can be, you know, changed as the project evolves. One side question, or, or like, I'm going to talk about, one thing I wanted to talk about too is this idea that, that in software, I think we tend to really value architecture uh, as kind of a beauty, a grander, like, you know, this is the like, architecture is like really important. I think it is, but I think we sometimes like forget how important it is to have like a battle tested mature system that has been used in a lot of different settings and environment by different groups of people and set of people. Um, and for that system to have evolved and reflected all these needs over time. So I think like this maturity sometimes is not necessarily pretty from a design standpoint or from like, you know, some some maybe bug fixes or, or patches might not look beautiful in the code, right? But like there are things that are part of battle testing. They're like scars from like proving the value and delivering on goals that matter to people too. So the, the exercise of like what's beautiful architecturally and kind of a perfect system versus like what is kind of battle tested systems. I think sometimes we don't give enough credit to that, that second part too. Um, and you see these systems, I, I remember these systems internal to Facebook that you know, systems that maybe there's been some some papers on or some conversations and, and podcasts on, but systems like Scuba, Data Swarm, um, Hive, these systems were so battle tested. They're like tanks. You know, you try to take them down, and you couldn't just because they had um, had so much load over time. So, so I think Airflow is kind of backtracking in 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 some architectural decision things like you know having a really centralized rest api that works really well things like you know having a distributed scheduler and and all these things you know have happened or are happening today and that's just a, a slightly different way to uh to build software where maybe you start by delivering value and then and then you um you optimize to find the, the right like compromises and the right positioning as as you move forward and you know airflow today has i think i think on our github page there's been like 300 plus organization that sent us a pull request to say like hey we use this thing in production which is really the tip of the icebergs so in reality we do have you know thousands of companies using this in production that are committed uh, the nature of a federating system like airflow is very sticky too so we know you know, at places like Lyft and Airbnb, where I was before that, you know, they will be running Airflow in a decade, certainly, you know, despite having built something like Flight at Lyft and having some more specialized alternative, you know, for, for ML and other places. So this, I think this long-term vision is really important too, of we are an Apache Software Foundation project that is governed by many organizations, including, Airbnb, the kind of the mother company, but places like Astronomer and Google that are heavily invested in, in the project, and then hundreds of other organizations. And there's something that's really nice about this. The, the Apache Software Foundation is has got some, you know, there's definitely like pros and cons to this model of governance. But like one thing that's really nice about it is that it's a meritocracy and it's very welcoming and people from all sorts of places can come together and govern and, and move that project forward. All right. Well, we'll begin to wind down. One question I 
I wanted to ask, we did this show recently about a project called Cadence, which is a, a work, more like a workflow orchestration system rather than a, a data workflow orchestration system. Uh, Cadence is used for long-lived microservice workflows, for example, where you might have something that might take days to execute, or it's almost like a long-lived user session that might exist across multiple services. And uh, it's interesting system, and it just made me wonder why Airflow is only used for data workflows. Why isn't Airflow used for maybe complex, multi-service you know, kind of a like state management things like state man issues where you might have state managed across multiple services and you're doing something involving those multiple services and perhaps an interactive user. Why is that? Why is Airflow only used for data pipelines? Mostly because that's where it came from. So that's what all the docs are written about. Um, you absolutely can do some of those, but it's not kind of a use case that we've kind of put front and center in our docs. So it's not obvious at first sight without getting familiar with the code how you'd have to wire it all up together and how you'd have to do the communication but yeah ultimately kind of airflow airflow doesn't care what its tasks are doing yes it's kind of it has all these built-in operators and and kind of connections for dealing with common data processing tasks but it can run a bash script it can run python code You, you know because it can run bash it can run absolutely anything you want so it's kind of Airflow doesn't actually care what it's running. So you absolutely can do that. It's just not, it's not where Airflow came from. So it's not obvious or highlighted in our docs how you could use it for, for this kind of workload. Cadence is a, is a really interesting project. I checked it out after the episode. Um, and the kind of the big difference between an Airflow workflow and a Cadence workflow is in Airflow, you don't have to change your code to work with Airflow. You can just run the, your existing code you want, whereas Cadence, you have to make sure there's all kinds of caveats, which, you know, it, it's got pros and cons. Because of that, they've got all kinds of flexibility about retries and, and, and stuff like that. But it's you have to you have to embed Cadence really deeply in your application and in your workflow to, you know, if it's in Go or Java, which are the two clients they've got or had, you have to you have to implement the interfaces and you have to you have to use their APIs and it's very tightly coupled into your application. Whereas something like Airflow, it's much it kind of stands back and just goes, I'll run what you tell me and it's up you know, you can do what you like once once Airflow kicks it off. I think that the term workflow can be deceptive too. Like we think it like workflow orchestration is pretty generic. It sounds like we're in the same space, but I think like fundamentally we're in in, in fairly different uh, places too between Airflow and Cadence. Like Cadence, I'm reading from uh, from their docs page, but it talks about being a kind of a, a platform to build distributed applications, right? And it's it's really definitely not the case. With Airflow, Airflow is that you can think of as a distributed scheduler that is really smart and intricate, where you can put intricate rules around complex dependencies and what happens with failures. And you can have these enormous DAGs with hundreds of tasks that depend on each other, and they're all batch jobs, essentially. So it's just a really smart distributed cron where Cadence seems more like an infrastructure or like a framework kind of layer to build uh, distributed applications on top of and maybe communication layers across system. So maybe right. a workflow for them is like atomic transactions or right. atomic transaction across systems maybe. 
but right. I don't know yeah. enough about the project. No, that's right. All right, guys. Well, one last question. Any changes you anticipate in the distributed workflow space in the next few years? So I would actually just kind of piggyback onto uh, Max's comment just a minute ago. Uh, by that, you do mean the distributed workflow for data pipelines? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So one key thing which I think we're seeing a lot of is an explosion in data pipelines from the perspective of a lot more constituents wanting to be able to easily, and by that I really do mean very easily, author and deploy pipelines for a very large variety of needs without necessarily needing to know anything about how it's run, where it's run. With a conflict being that for different kind of pipelines, there are specialized processing now for machine learning. And how do you take advantage of that? But the next step, I think, is really around the entire life cycle, which is how do people integrate this into their CI/CD pipelines? How do people make this observable at the very end so that you, know, you can say, hey, look, I automatically need to scale. I need to deploy and the entire set of processes which happened as part of any mature, even like a DevOps lifecycle or like you know, how software development evolved in the lifecycle evolved with DevOps, that same lifecycle with respect to data pipelines evolving with respect to data operations and that smooth transition from somebody saying, you know, I have an idea or like, you know, I have this business need. How do I author something? How does that whole process happen seamlessly without having any hiccups and that interrupts? And then, you know, longer term, being able to be notified of this within these particular gaps. Now, within that, we're covering things like, you know, the equivalent of GitHub from like a source code aspect. You're covering an equivalent of a deploy and like, you know, zero downtime deploy and like, you know, different micro deploys over a period of time. With that, you're starting to think about, you know, observability and versioning and, you know, hey, this particular change caused this. You're starting to think about, you know, how do you store your infrastructure, whether using vaults or resource constraints or whether they're automatically getting deployed. Within that, you're starting to think about, you know, security scanning for vulnerabilities and, you know, data security as being an increase and data privacy as being an increasing element. So I think that entire life cycle, which we've seen in software applications, and that life cycle as applied to data pipelines is one key thing which I'd see like in a very, very quick change in that entire maturation of the data engineering practice. Yeah, the biggest change I think that's coming in the data engineering, data science, data processing space is because of all the data privacy laws. So kind of, you know, GDPR and the right to be forgotten. If you have taken some customer's data and then you've processed it once and then like four levels down, it's kind of, you know, you go through multiple different levels of using that data and consuming it and transforming it. If someone says, please go delete my data, how do you know which data sets that, that data fed into? So kind of audibility and traceability around where your data's gone and where it's come from. That's going to be a, a big thing. GDPR in Europe and uh, California has similar laws passed or passing. So I think that's going to be a, a big thing that's coming, which is what are you doing with your data and being able to show what you've done with your data that's particularly important for regulated industries so kind of like finance and uh, healthcare you need you know they, they also need that so i think that's going to be a big one which is more people are going to have to pay attention to what they're doing with their data and what they're and being able to prove what they're not doing with their data 
So one thing I'm really curious to see evolve to is what I call kind of layer two solutions to airflow, right? Um, so there's an interesting analogy if you look at, you know, Bitcoin and, and Lightning Network, where you have, you know, Bitcoin that's really uh, foundational and that things can be built on top of that blockchain, like things that might be faster, more opinionated, that provide a different set of constraints and guarantees. So I think like we're definitely going to start seeing more open source project that uh, that that are like these computation framework that are more opinionated that solve more specific business uh, specific use cases things like you know A/B testing frameworks or data data quality related things everything related to the data ops or the ML infrastructure movement so feature repositories metric repositories those are things that every company every big companies with data professional data team that have these teams you know are building today but that are filled with business logic and have not converged like since, since, like, i think there's still things that different companies different individual thinks differently about what a feature repository that can serve like an, an ml and for a platform looks like or what does a metric repository look like for a b testing and i, I think we're gonna we're already starting to see certain level of people uh, kind of sharing their use cases or maybe uh, doing reference reference implementations and sharing that code. But when I created Airflow originally, I really wanted for these like layer two solutions and frameworks to start emerging as pieces of open source software that would be potentially powered uh, by, by Airflow. So I'm really curious to see that come through. Um, I think we're, we'll see more tools through around like metadata management so right now this metadata all this metadata that we have and metadata is kind of an unclear term there's you know operational metadata there's uh, lineage metadata there's uh, kind of this graph of data object in your company that is very complex um, so like seeing tools like airflow and amundsen work a little bit better together and then kind of the data ecosystem to be more uh, to evolve to share more metadata so I think the theme of the next, you know, five to 10 years is probably like metadata management and metadata sharing across the ecosystem of tools. So the one thing I would add to what Max just said is from a commercial standpoint, we're definitely seeing commercial software or solution providers wanting to embed Airflow into their offerings. So it's kind of like the layer two not necessarily open source solutions, but layer two commercial solutions, embedding Airflow and building on top of it for particular business vertical needs. And so that's that's a trend happening in the commercial side. I'd absolutely expect that. I, I agree happening on the uh, open source side as well. Cool. Well, guys, thank you so much for this long and detailed conversation about Airflow. It's an amazing project and Max, nice work on creating it. And Vic and Ash... I'm impressed by what you guys have done with Astronomer. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much, Jeff. Thanks okay. for having us. All right, guys. Have a great rest of your day.